Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. We're going to be talking about Labour's internal woes. But we're going to start, and because we've been leaving our brilliant guests waiting for so long, we're going to go straight into talking uh, to our fantastic guests. We're going to start with Ilya. Uh, uh, we have live. Here we are. Uh, are you? Can I just check, Ilya? Where exactly are you at the moment? Because I, I, I should have double checked your location. I, I'm in Moscow. You are in Moscow. Okay, so you're yeah. talking live from Moscow now. Ilya is a fantastic. Uh, writer, I actually spoke to Ilya. I mean, it was it was years ago, wasn't it? I think it was during the Crimean crisis because I remember yeah, I quoted yeah, you yeah. in an article about that. Now I'm just going to start, if that's okay. I'm going to start. I think we've got a clip here uh, from Ukraine's ambassador. So I'm just going to start with this. This was on Sky News on British television today. This camera is around, not allowing me to tell what I think of Germany now, right now. If I have somebody from NATO to it's say right, something... It's just you and me. Tell us. <laughs> you know, if, if I have somebody from NATO to tell things like that, I would expect Germany to be the last ones. So many Ukrainians are still remember what Germans did in our part of the globe, and Ukraine especially. Now, there's this big narrative at the moment which is centering on Germany's refusal to allow arms to Ukraine on the basis of Germany's own history, and that narrative being very much spun. I just want to know to start off with what your kind of in terms of from the russian as a russian dissident i suppose what's your first impression your outline of the crisis as you see it right now uh so well uh, of course this uh, this crisis uh, has a very strange uh, structure because if we look back to what happened in uh, 2014 and and then uh, so uh, basically, it was uh, the situation where the Putin was the main uh, person who sailed the, the danger to the um, to the west. So he was uh, he was a person who was much or or uh, you know representative of the country, which was much uh, more brave, much more uh, risky, much more uh, unpredictable uh, than the West, uh, than the NATO, and uh, that's why he, uh, he tactically won uh, the, the situation at that moment. Uh, for now, uh, you can uh, see that uh, somehow the, the sites uh, were, were changing rapidly. Because for now, the, the West, uh, the Ukraine, are the main, uh, the main uh, uh, risky side in this conflict. So uh, you have uh, a huge uh, wave of uh, um, warnings, uh, disinformation, uh, and, and so on uh, from, the, uh, from the side of the West. 
and uh, Putin he's uh, he's uh, somehow trying to uh, to uh, defend himself uh, to present uh, uh, Russia as also uh, a um, a force uh, that can uh, play uh, some uh, some risky uh, risky games. So I believe that the nature of this uh, crisis, quite schematically, that uh, in the beginning, uh, let's say the spring uh, last year, uh, the the West uh, start to uh, start to put all this information uh, about the, some hidden military preparations of Russia near the uh, Ukrainian border. And uh, Putin, he like answered this call, he said, okay, so if you are talking about this, uh, I, will, um, I will do this. Yeah, and uh, now you see the the uh, the growing uh, the, the the growing um, uh, kind of uh, answers and provocations uh, from uh, from the both sides, uh, which are in fact very dangerous. Uh, so it could uh, it could provoke uh, a real uh, war uh, without uh, any real uh, let's say ground behind it, without any. Uh, real uh, tasks uh, that could be solved by Russia, for example, because of of this uh, possible aggression uh, to to Ukraine. Yeah, so you can't you can't call uh, you, you can't uh, talk about any uh, let's say rational goals of uh, Russia in this situation. What Russia want to uh, or can uh, gain from uh, from this uh, invasion, from this possible invasion to Ukraine, would be the occupation of the part of Ukraine, uh, be a kind of victory in any in any case. Uh, so would be uh, some uh, some paramilitary involvement uh, in the uh, in the east of Ukraine. Uh, kind of um, uh, step forward for uh, Russia to, to gain anything. So all, all it's not, uh, not clear and probably there are no proper answers to these uh, questions. But the, this kind of uh, mechanism of, uh, uh, you know, some trade of dangers <laughs> from the both sides uh, can uh, can provoke uh, this very irrational uh, step, uh, military step from uh, from the Russian side. I mean, what do you think Putin's aim is right now? Because obviously, if we're talking particularly from the west of Ukraine, there's huge anger and fear about Russian dominance um, in terms of the the danger of, as they would see it, obviously, as a Russian invasion and Russian domination. Um, of Ukraine and the support for paramilitaries in the east by Russia, which has destabilized, helped destabilize that area. Is Russia, do you think, intent? I mean, some would say they were intent on an outright occupation of Ukraine, which if Russia tried that, they could do it. They could overwhelm Ukraine's military, but at a massive, massive cost, surely, to Russians' own military. We've seen, we saw what happened with the Russian occupation, of course, of Afghanistan. Uh, and Ukraine is a much bigger country. So what's your thoughts of what Putin's actual aims are in this? Uh, yeah, so from the beginning, uh, even from uh, from the annexation of Crimea and then uh, with the 
uh, with the tensions that we, we have uh, for now, the Russian target is definitely not the Ukraine itself. So the Russian target is some uh, kind of recomposition of the global world order. That's why uh, during all these years, uh, Russia never um, uh, had uh, any talks uh, with, uh, with Ukraine directly because uh, Russia and Putin personally, uh, he never recognized uh, Ukraine as a kind of uh, subject. There is no subjectivity of Ukraine in the eyes of Putin. So Ukraine is just an element of the uh, Western-dominated uh, global, uh, global order. And Putin wants uh, want somehow to adopt this, uh, this order. Uh, so uh, that's why, uh, for uh, for now, you have the uh, the the real subject of of the of the talks and the real subject of Russian um, interests in this situation, uh, the United States. Yeah. Uh, so uh, that's why uh, Ukraine itself is uh, is not uh, the uh, is not. Uh, um, Something independent, uh, something independent and important uh, for uh, Putin in this situation, and that's why the military occupation of Ukraine itself, without this broad uh, framework, without the possibility of the this new recomposition, uh, this new global uh, agreement, uh, doesn't uh, doesn't make sense for uh, for uh, Russia. So that's why I. Uh, I don't see any uh, reasonable, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, 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 no any reasons uh, for Russia to invade uh, uh, Ukraine uh, in the moment. I mean, there was a lot of controversy. I'll just quickly, we'll just quickly show. This was over something which Joe Biden said. So I think what you're going to see is that Russia will be held accountable. If it invades, and it depends on what it does. It's one thing if it's a minor incursion and then we end up having a fight about what to do and not do, etc. I mean, that was portrayed by a lot of Joe Biden's opponents as a green light to Russia, I suppose, to engage in some form of military action in Ukraine. I, I mean, I'm just wondering, in Russia itself, is public opinion broadly united around Putin? Or is there some dissent, particularly over... Uh, in terms of policy towards Ukraine um, and, you know, ha- yeah, I mean, how much dissent I suppose is there or, or is the perspective, the dominant perspective uh, of NATO encirclement being a threat to Russia? Is that generally where most Russians are at? Uh, yeah, so, uh, um, well, so all this uh international agenda for Putin was always related to the uh, to the domestic agenda. So, for example, if you look back to uh, 2014, the main uh, uh, the main idea behind the uh, Russian uh, military uh, involvement in this situation was the counter-revolutionary idea. So the uh, so Maidan was a, was a kind of uh, revolution uh, organized um, uh, with the uh, with the use of the some Western technologies, uh, and uh, by our like Russian uh, military answer, we want to prevent uh, such kind of revolutionary technologies in our country. So uh, that's why uh, these uh, agendas were uh, were directly uh, connected, 
And that, uh, of course, um, uh, helped uh, Putin to uh, to mobilize uh, a huge uh, support uh, from below, kind of patriotic support, uh, to name uh, any kind of uh, opposition uh, uh, Western uh, like spies or Western, uh, Western ag- uh, agents. Uh, but uh, for now... Uh, you can't uh, have uh, such uh, situation, uh, such situation in the in the country where uh, these agendas uh, could be uh, somehow directly uh, related, and uh, <clears throat> uh, the international agenda could uh, could uh, be turned into a new patriotic mobilization uh, inside the country. Uh, so, according to the recent uh, polls, uh, the uh, fear of war uh, is uh, on the top fears of Russians for for this year. So after the coronavirus and uh, the health uh, problems, uh, for the second is more than sixty percent they uh, 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 frightened uh, frightened of war. So uh, that's why uh, the um, the way how Putin somehow can uh, can uh, manage uh, not not the grow of his support, but, uh, you know, uh, if he want just to save uh, such level of support that he, uh, he has for now and, and which is much lower than it was six years ago, uh, um, he need better to present himself as a peacemaker, as a, as a person who prevent the war rather than a person who, uh, who starts the war. So just finally, is, is your prediction in terms of what happens in the next few weeks is there'll be lots of bluster uh, from both sides, but ultimately, actually, there isn't an appetite for a full-scale war within the Russian population, and therefore Putin will essentially try and present himself as someone who the brink of war came, but he managed to present himself as a peacemaker. Is that, is that how you see it, rather than any form of conflict? Uh, yeah, so uh, so I, I think that the perspective is uh, that we are moving uh, to the more and more unpredictable situation uh, where uh, there is no any uh, reasons uh, for the Russian elite, for, for Putin personally to start some military, uh, military actions uh, because the cost of this uh, action and, and, uh, will be much, uh, much more serious than the gains of this uh, action. Uh, but um, uh, I mean, the, the, uh, the corridor of the opportunities uh, for, uh, for, uh, for Russia in this situation became uh, more and more small. Yeah, so that's uh, that's why, uh, unfortunately, there is a danger that, uh, despite this uh, this uh, this uh, reasons, uh, this rational uh, thinking, uh, this uh, uh, this military conflict uh, in uh, one form or another could be possible. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. And sorry again that we had that slight uh, slight delay because my camera collapsed. Uh, but we really, really appreciate that. We've got, I should say, we've got a Ukrainian journalist who's joining us later on the program, Volodymyr Yashenko, who'll give a perspective from Kiev. But it's it's great to have your views as someone, a dissident voice uh, within Russia to give your own views. So we really, really appreciate it. And thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Bye. Cheers. Take care, Leah.
Um, thanks everyone for joining us again. As you can see, it's like technical hitch, which is why I'm using my MacBook Pro camera. Rather, I'm in Barcelona, as you may know, so I couldn't get any technical assistance when the camera collapsed. Ten minutes to go before the show. Uh, nonetheless, despite that rare technical hitch, we're not GP News. Um, do you support us on Patreon.com slash Owen Jones 84. That's how you keep the show on the road, normally much smoother than this. Uh, we've got lots of documentaries coming when I finish my bloody book, which I will do. Uh, also, you can put uh, questions to the guests on Super Chat. If you're watching, do click on the YouTube link uh, and press like and subscribe. Also, of course, you many of you are listening on the podcast, but if you're not already, then you should do that. I will read out everyone's Super Chat uh, at the end and say thank you very much to you. That's what I'll do. Right, I'm going to bring in Adam Bienkov, who's very patiently been waiting as my entire technical apparatus imploded before our very eyes. How are you doing, Adam? Good afternoon. How are you doing? I'm, do- I'm kind of okay. I've got slight adrenaline. You know when you're about to do something and then everything just collapses and you're like, Panic. well, yeah. it didn't, couldn't get much worse. Okay, I'm just going to start. Let's start with Dominic Raab. Why not? Let's see what, what Dominic Raab <laughs> Oh, wow. Uh, let's move forward to the end of next week. Yes. Could you be Prime Minister? No, the um, uh, it's a kind offer, so if we put uh, no... <laughs> uh, there was I a should bit say, of laughter in the background there, wasn't there? You literally could hear laughter <laughs> in the studio. I should say, by the way, just to introduce Adam properly, he's, of course, the chief political uh, correspondent at Byline Times. He's one of the best journalists, political journalists in the country. We will be pushing his substack heavily um, at the end because everyone needs to subscribe to that. One of the best voices we have. Is Boris Johnson, what do you think? Is he dead? Is it all over? Well, I think whenever we discuss these these kind of things, you always have to caveat it with saying that, you know, events are very, in politics are always very unpredictable. Boris Johnson has been down before and, and recovered. Um, so anything is possible. But I think looking at the events of the last month or so, looking at the opinion polls, looking at the complete chaos in the government among Conservative MPs, Conservative MPs tweeting against each other late at night on a, on a Saturday. Um, it's very difficult to see how he, this is recoverable for, for Boris Johnson. I mean, that's not to say that he's going to be outed immediately. You know, uh, Theresa May, there was a confidence vote against her and she survived that. She stayed in power for some time afterwards. Um, look at previous prime ministers as well, Gordon Brown, um, he managed to limp on uh, after he failed to call an election in 2007. But I think the chances of Boris Johnson surviving this and then going on to win a general election with his ratings as they are with the Conservative Party, divided as they are, I think are very slim. I think the most important story, actually, we should be talking about at the moment, we'll talk about the wider context, is the front page of the Sunday Times. Uh, now, this was, uh, and this is pretty shocking, uh, a... Uh, one of the only Muslim uh, senior politicians within the Conservative Party who claims they faced being sacked because of their faith. This is, of course, Nusra Ghani. Um, now, this is the reason this is, I think, so so important is the rampant Islamophobia of the Conservative Party just has not been addressed. Saeed Avasi, Baroness Saeed Avasi, has very courageously, again, the most senior female Muslim politician within the Conservative Party, has been speaking out about what she says is Islamophobia, which goes from the top to the bottom um, of the Conservative Party. 
Um, we've got here uh, Shabab Khan from ITV, who says, when I was reporting on Islamophobia in the Conservative Party a few years ago, I was told by several hopeful Tory Muslim candidates that they were actively quizzed about their faith during the selection process. And one was outright told being Muslim would likely be a problem. Polling mm. of Conservative Party members has shown large hostility and towards Muslims and a sense of Muslims being a danger to Western society and democracy. So what do you think about this? Because most of the media just hasn't, you know, Boris Johnson himself, when he compared Muslim women to bank robbers yes. and letterboxes, there was a surge of Islamophobic hate crimes in this country. I mean, there were reports of people going up to Muslim women and trying to force letters through their yes. veils. I mean, what does it say about the fact that this has just been ignored for years? Yeah, I mean, it has been. I mean, this has been a major issue in the Conservative Party for a long time. I interviewed uh, Baroness Farsi way back in 2018, in which she uh, made many of these allegations against the Conservative Party, saying it's right to the top, goes right to the top of the party. Um, and she said very similar things to what uh, Nuz Ghani has said, that she was told that her position is, that she was made that she was making other people in the cabinet feel uncomfortable. Um, as you say, we've had a prime minister who's compared uh, Muslim women to letterboxes and bank robbers. He, he wrote pieces saying that Islam is the problem. Uh, he, he asked when are people going to get 18th century on Islam's medieval ass. You know, um, he has got a long, long record of making Islamophobic comments. Um, and it goes beyond the prime minister. It's, it's the wider party as well. I mean, Zach Goldsmith ran a blatantly Islamophobic campaign for mayor of London. Uh, and not only did it not damage his career, okay, he didn't win the election, but he was then ennobled by the prime minister uh, and now continues as a major public figure, despite the fact that many people, many Muslim people within the Conservative Party spoke out against him. So it's a, it's a widespread problem that it just hasn't been, it hasn't received the same sort of focus as uh, the issue of anti-Semitism in, in the Labour Party. I'm not saying, you know, I think there was very right that got a lot of focus, but it just hasn't received the same level of focus or anything like the same level of focus, um, given the, what it should have, given that it's it's so high profile within the party and involves some of its most senior figures within it. I mean, just take the EHRC, for example. I mean, uh, Lewis, this is a commentator saying, it looks like there are strong grounds for an EHRC investigation to the Conservative Party for Islamophobia, which they have avoided until now. Mm. I mean, the EHRC didn't launch an investigation into the Conservative Party. They were partly justified it on the basis that the Conservative Party announced an inquiry, their own inquiry into Islamophobia, which was just a joke. Yes. We're going to be really honest. Yes, it was a joke. And even the limited findings of that inquiry found didn't lead to anything. It did criticise the Prime Minister and his comments. It did criticise Zach Goldsmith. What action was taken against either of those people? Absolutely none whatsoever. Um, so nothing has been done and nothing will be done under this prime minister i mean and there's been a sort of fight back against these comments um within the from from downing street essentially their, their line has been in the last sort of uh, 12 hours has been well she never made a, a formal complaint well there are lots of reasons why people don't make formal complaints when they were within a, within a political party um and if if an allegation of this type is brought to to somebody senior in the party they should have launched an investigation regardless of whether she'd made a formal complaint. Her simply her raising it in itself, I think, should account as a, as a formal complaint. Um, just looking here, just looking at the latest coverage we've seen in the Sunday mm. papers. So Tim Shipman has, will Boris Johnson run out of road? 
and this is talking about another and yet another party. I don't actually, I've lost track. I don't know how many parties were. I don't know when Downing Street was sober during the COVID crisis. And we joke. I mean, we shouldn't. I mean, I think that's the only way we get through this general nightmare of the last two years. Yeah, I was amongst, I watched my relatives buried on Zoom and lots of other people did, far worse than me. People weren't able to hold the hands of their dying relatives. So you can see why this is cut through. Sue Gray, um, Sue Gray has become the safe word of 2022. Sue Gray, according to Robert Peston, has found an email from official warning against number 10 drinks party in May 2020. So it does seem, and this surely is the clincher, is that, um, Boris Johnson's private secretary clearly was told that this party shouldn't take place. So do you think that, what do you think will happen with Sue Gray's investigation? Because my understanding is her evidence won't be published. It will just be general findings. The prime minister will get the report hours before it's actually released. And Sue Gray does, I mean, I don't, I'm not doing this to launch a sort of smear campaign against Sue Gray, but she's not as independent as people might suggest. So yeah. I mean, I mean, this this is a an inqu- this is a civil service inquiry into actions, partly by the civil service, and by the prime minister and the government of which she is an employee. Uh, she may be independently minded, but this is not, as Downing Street keep on calling it, an independent inquiry. And more than that, when she finally does publish her evidence, it will go to the prime minister, and we still haven't had a, a clear answer from Downing Street exactly what will happen before it's published, and whether they're going to publish all of it. Dominic Raab today wouldn't commit to publishing all of the evidence. I think, in reality, what we're going to get is that she will publish a report which will set out, from her perspective, what the facts are, what parties took place. But there will be no judgment. There will be no. It won't, it won't say. The Prime Minister has broken the law. The Prime Minister has lied to Parliament. Uh, that will be down to politicians to decide and to the public to decide. And really, I don't, I don't actually think we need an inquiry to, make, to come to that decision. It's clear from everything that the Prime Minister and the ministers have said right at the start, when this first came up in, at the start of December, that he has been completely dishonest about that. Everybody knows what happened in Downing Street. I mean, there's countless parties that say there's another one that's going to come out in, in the coming days. Uh, Dominic Cummings is going to talk to Sue Gray, I think we believe tomorrow. Um, so more details will come out, but it's it's overwhelmingly clear. The Prime Minister denied there were any parties. We now know that that was a lie. Uh, so regardless of what Sue Gray says, we know that he's been completely dishonest with the public and he's misled Parliament. And his own, the ministerial code, which he's signed, which he's put his name to, says that if, if he knowingly misleads Parliament, he should be expected to resign. Um, and lots of ministers, Dominic Robs today said that that would happen. But, you know, I don't believe that that's going to happen. I don't believe he's going to resign. I think he's going to have to be forced out. I think he's going to have to be dragged kicking and screaming, screaming out of Downing Street before he'll leave. Before I ask what, what happens next, one thing I do think this is really important, actually, that I, I, because we're hearing now, for example, Rory Stewart, who I suppose is the sweetheart of Generation X centrism. <laughs> so, I mean, it's, you know, he's a Tory with a terrible voting record. I mean, he is. He's got yeah. an atrocious voting record. Voted for terrible, terrible things over the years. Uh, but because he's pointed out that Boris Johnson is a monster and everybody knew or should have known, you know, what kind of system produces this heinous individual, corrupt in, in so many ways, uh, a liar, a charlatan, obviously unfit for public office. Now, you've on your brilliant Substack, you've got this piece now, what Boris Johnson's rant about me on stage at the O2 talk me about the Prime Minister, because it should be noted, Adam has been following Boris Johnson closer than most British journalists in the country, because your beat for a long time was London when he mm-hmm. was mayor. Um, just, to, I mean, 
do you not think because i remember i sometimes say this when in 2018 i was on this was before we i was actually doing the uh question time uh, auditions for the new bbc question time presenter yeah and yeah. a conservative mp was holding court and said um boris johnson will never become prime minister because tory mps know he's a disgrace and a, you know a liar and all the rest of it and then a few months later published his own video about what a great prime minister boris johnson would be but that is the point isn't it they knew what he was the pundits yes. the politicians knew what he was all along this isn't a surprise what does that tell us about our political system absolutely everybody this is no great surprise to conservative mps and um you know as you say i, I first started following boris johnson way back in 2007 I think at the time, there were, at that stage, there was a kind of prevailing wisdom about him, that he was a kind of, he was a bit buffoonish, but he was amiable and people saw him as a kind of uh, breath of fresh air. And, you know, he turned up on Have I Got News For You and people may have sort of laughed at his expense, but they kind of, most people kind of liked him or got a good impression of him, most people. Um, but way back then, I, I immediately saw that there was a, another side to him, and I didn't—I I didn't think this public image really fit with reality. When I saw him at, at, at Mayor's Question Time talking to uh, London Assembly, um, he was just routinely lie. He would uh, evade questions. He would insult the questioners. Um, just shameless dishonesty. He would make promises that he had zero intention of ever keeping. You know, he, he promised to keep all ticket offices open in London. He, he signed like a Nick Clegg style pledge that, that that would happen and then immediately closed them all. He said that he was going to eradicate home, uh, rough sleeping in London and rough sleeping uh, sword more than doubled. Uh, he said he was going to hold down fares and they, they massively went up. And he did this because he he just didn't care. He, the only thing that he he's ever is clear to me right from the start. The only thing he really cares about is his own glorification, his own advancement. And it doesn't matter what he has. To, he doesn't matter what he has to do, what he has to lie about, what what promises he has to break. And this was this was all there, and it was all evident at the time that he was mayor of London. But it just wasn't covered by the press. Um, the, the 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 only paper really covering his time at mayor of London was was the Evening Standard, which was uh, at one point edited by a close family friend of Boris Johnson's and was very sycophantic towards him. Um, and the the national press, when they covered him at all, it was purely kind of in the framing of his personal ambition to be prime minister and what that meant for David Cameron. And it was kind of the the, the Boris versus Dave show. And actually, I think the, the, the BBC even... Uh, published a even though broadcast a, a documentary which was called the boris versus dave show um and it was all about you know who the, put it and the writer mick wright has got a good good expression for this because it's kind of politics as uh, professional wrestling where it doesn't you know it's not not really looking at the substance of of, of politicians and and what they're actually doing uh, the politics that they have it's just who here are these characters let's put them in a ring put them up against each other and what happens next so was, the focus was always when is he going to be prime minister? Um, is he going to be prime minister? It was never should he be prime minister, mm. and so and that, that that carried on once he became once he went back into national politics. He became foreign secretary under Theresa May. Theresa May made him foreign secretary despite knowing exactly what he was like, having dealt with him over many years, knew that he was unsuited to the job, mm. but took a cynical decision for her own advancement to put him in that position. Um, even his supporters will admit that he was not a good foreign secretary. And yet he was still supported by Conservative MPs. He was still supported by many of the, the same uh, commentators and newspapers that are now turning on him. And he was allowed to, be, to become prime minister, despite it being obvious 
way for, 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 for decades now that he was completely unsuited to the job that he's now in. Just a couple of final things before we bring in uh, Volodymyr Ishenko from Ukraine. Let's just hear this from William. People may have seen this clip because it went completely viral, but this is Conservative MP uh, William Rack. In recent days, a number of members of Parliament have faced pressures and intimidation from members of the government because of their declared or assumed desire for a vote of confidence in the party leadership of the Prime Minister. It is, of course, the duty of the Government Whip's office to secure the government's business in the House of Commons. However, it is not their function to breach the ministerial code in threatening to withdraw investments from members of Parliament's constituencies which are funded from the public purse. Additionally, reports to me and others of members of staff at Number 10 Downing Street, special advisers, government ministers and others encouraging the publication of stories in the press seeking to embarrass those who they suspect of lacking confidence in the Prime Minister is similarly unacceptable. The intimidation of a Member of Parliament is a serious matter. Moreover, the reports of which I am aware would seem to constitute blackmail. Now, but this is extremely serious and I think it should be made clear this is very, very serious. My only issue is I do think this needs to be put in the context of a pretty grim system which is always in place whoever is in power i worked in parliament in 2008 when gordon brown's government was trying to put through 42 days detention and it was grotesque what they tried to do they told but you know like they were like, we'll give money for a miners compensation fund if you vote for it they yeah. they tried bribing the dep uh who i think they did they voted for the dp uh you know that it was like we'll spend money here that kind of thing in the Iraq war, one Labour politician was told that someone closer than would be sacked if they didn't vote for the Iraq war. So I'm not doing this to deflect from the awful, horrific behaviour of the Conservatives. And I do think this is of a certain order. But there is, mm. I just don't want to let the system off the hook. So I just wonder what your thoughts are about the whipping system. No, I mean, absolutely. I mean, you're right. I think, I think these, the situation, as, as William Rag set out, is wrong. I think the whipping situation is, is wrong that people should be intimidated into voting one way or another, that they should be smeared in the press. That's, it's all absolutely wrong. But you're right. This is a long-standing practice. Um, I think George Mumbayo, um wrote a piece about it 20 years ago about the new Labour government and who did very similar things. Um, so it, it, it is long saying, but I, I think this comes back to the discussion about Islamophobia as well. There are a lot of kind of conservative MPs now speaking out against practices that have been long standing, which they previously didn't choose to speak out against because it wasn't politically convenient for them to do so. Um, so on the Islamophobia, we had Steve Baker uh, and uh, and others speaking out in her defence last night. Where were the voices speaking out in, in defence of Saeed Avasi uh, four years ago? Exactly. They didn't. They didn't speak out because it wasn't convenient. And it's the same on this on this whipping and, and all of the other scandals. People, uh, conservative MPs. I mean, some some of them. Yeah, I don't want to tar everyone with the same brush. Some will be, you know, taking principled stances. But a lot of the voice, a lot of the things we're hearing about now for the first time from conservative MPs and also from parts of the press have been going on for a long time, and they just haven't. The, the sun, the sunlight hasn't been shone on them because it wasn't convenient for them to do so at the time, and it is now because. There are people within the Conservative Party who want a change of Prime Minister. There are people within the Fleet Street who want a change of Prime Minister. And that's why we're hearing about a lot of this stuff now and we didn't hear about it before. 
just very finally before we bring in our next guest, uh, in terms of what happens next, I, sh- I mean, this has just made me laugh. Matthew Goodwin, um, who is, yeah, I think that laughter says everything. Here's a prediction. Uh, Matt, Matt Goodwin is a political academic um, who I would say amongst his profession raises eyebrows. If Johnson dumps his advisors and replaces them with people who understand the realignment, then the Conservatives will easily win the next election. Three across the Red Bull 2.0 including Barry South. I have to say, if an entire realignment depends on one person, which works a realignment. What do, you th- what do you think about that in terms of Boris Johnson and the so-called Red Wall, as it's caricatured? But what do you think? Who comes next? And how do you, what do you think electorally the impact will be? Well, he's a supposed academic. I'm not sure what data he's using to, to make that prediction, given uh, the premises absolutely historically dreadful ratings. And also just the, the, the broader political context where Brexit... Uh, is not the big issue for voters that it was in 2019. Um, it's not the big dividing line. And actually, if you look at voters in the so-called Red Wall, their political views are not vastly different from the views of the rest of the country, which at the moment is that the Prime Minister should resign. An overwhelming majority of people believe that he should resign. Uh, and he's unhappy with the Conservative Party. And so I don't think, I think, the, I mean, it's a bit of a hobby horse of this, this realignment uh, business. Uh, but it's, I, I, I don't really understand exactly what the basis is of this, this, this point that he's putting across. Adam, thank you so, so much. Everybody go and support uh, Adam Substack, which is uh, brilliant. All sorts of, these sorts of fantastic insights, adambienkov.substack.com. Also, obviously follow Adam on social media and his brilliant reporting for byline times but adam that was that was brilliant and and we're very lucky to have someone who knows boris johnson and 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 very clearly said what boris johnson was for years unlike those who are now pretending to wake up and realize how awful boris johnson is for the first time so thank you adam so much thanks see you soon uh so we're now going to bring in our next fantastic guest, who's Volodymyr Ishenko. Firstly, apologies. We overrun for technical issues. You can see I'm not using a very good camera because my camera failed. So we started late. But it's great to have you. you are you in Kiev, Volodymyr? That- when you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Right. Uh, no, I work in Germany right now. Ah, you're in Germany, of course. Ah. Well, yeah. thank you so much for having me. You, you're from Ukraine. And yeah, I yes, know you're, yes, yes. Um, Most of my life, I lived in Ukraine and uh, studied in Ukraine just for almost forever. Great. So what we're going to do is going to start, first of all, uh, by talking about... We've got this article which you wrote, uh, which everyone should read. Ukraine, Ukrainians are far from united on NATO. Let them uh, decide for themselves. Now, can you just sum up at the moment how you see the crisis and how you, the coverage of the crisis compared to how you actually see it at the moment? 
uh, look, what I, I haven't seen any, any any real good comprehensive explanation of what's going on and uh, why it's going on. Because those people who focus on Russia, either on kind of like Russian understanding side, so Russia has some security concerns that NATO has to acknowledge and so on and so forth, they don't explain why they didn't start uh, doing this before, why in 2021. And those people who say something like Russian imperialism is uh, has been always uh, looking at Ukraine to support Ukraine, to get back Ukraine, so on and so forth. Again, they do not explain why it's going right now. I think that uh, some factors, particularly in the United States domestic politics and uh, defeat of Trump and uh, coming to office of Joe Biden were very important. I think that the uh, Nord Stream uh, is also very important and probably one of the crucial factors in why it's going on right now. And also the domestic factors in Ukrainian politics, the escalation of attacks and repression of the opposition, which is uh, labeled as pro-Russian. However, it's uh, not really uh, a precise uh, definition of what they are standing for and who, what the people are voting for them and so on and so forth. So I think it's a combination of different factors. And at the moment, I'm not really ready to point at one of them. And I would be very suspicious of those people who uh, move a very certain agenda in this uh, in this whole co conflict and seeing only one side who is to blame here. Now, you wrote this uh, tweet. Uh, this is about the fact, so British intelligence has stated that Russian intelligence plans to install pro-Russian leaders in Ukraine from the former party of regions, particularly Mariev. And But the point you've made is actually he isn't pro-Russian. He's he's the owner of one of the last big opposition media, not yet blocked by the legal, legal sanctions. Yeah. But you're so just make that clear to us because there was a big splash about this, an attempted mm-hmm. pro, a pro-Russian coup in Ukraine. But the person involved is not actually aligned to Russia. Is that correct? Exactly. Muraev uh, has been uh, for three years under Russian sanctions, and the reason why he was under Russian sanctions is what that he didn't support. Uh, kind of like more pro-Russian candidate at the 2019 elections. So the idea was that the candidate from the biggest pro-Russian party, the opposition party for life, uh, would compete at the 2019 presidential elections. And he actually had very good chances to get to the second round instead of uh, the incumbent president Poroshenko. In the second round, he would meet Zelensky and he would certainly would be defeated by Zelensky. But anyway, the idea was to uh, to push uh, Boyko, the, the name of the candidate, uh, into the second round. Murayev was a kind of even like a spoiler. So uh, Murayev supported uh, Vilkul, who was a candidate of the richest uh, uh, person in Ukraine, the oligarch Renat Akhmetov. And next year, in 2019, in the, president, in the parliamentary elections, Murayev was also kind of like playing a kind of like a spoiler game against the opposition party for life. So uh, Murayev was kind of like consistently, at least for the last three years, distancing himself from a pro-Russian position. 
he was criticizing the kind of like more pro-Russian politicians. And uh, at, at, at the moment, they, this, this just shows the level of discussion, the level of understanding what's going on in Ukraine, where they, they are ready to put into this pro-Russian camp very different people with very different agendas. And uh, it's, now it looks extremely suspicious also, because if you, if you recall, there was this press conference by Volodymyr Zelensky in November last year, where he surprised like the whole world with the claim that Akhmetov is uh, preparing a coup d'etat against Zelensky. Of course, no evidence followed, no coup d'etat happened. And now we see a kind of like Akhmetov person, Murayev, uh, at the first list of a kind of like of supposedly pro-Russian government. And so there are different links. So the links between Murayev and Akhmetov. Murayev has also uh, good connections to uh, Yermak, the uh, chief of staff of Zelensky. And uh, Murayev uh, has this conflict with, uh, with the person who is called like Putin's man in Ukraine. Medvedchuk, who is now under uh, under sanctions from Ukrainian government, uh, pretty much illegal. Uh, his TV stations were just blocked by the rule of decree, but Murayev's TV stations were not blocked, and they actually benefited from the attack on the opposition media. So uh, the the, uh, the ideology that and the rhetoric of Murayev is very far from being pro-Russian. In, 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 the, in the political coordinates of uh, seven or eight years ago, before the war, he would be like perfectly centrist in this cleavage between pro-Western and pro-Russian because he is standing for something like pragmatic relations with, bo with both the West and the East and building a kind of like a real sovereign Ukraine with uh, its own developed industry and, and, and so on and so forth. So it's, it's, it's pretty far from like calling to calling Ukraine to join Russia or any Russian structures, and no, and, okay. and now it looks like extremely suspicious. And uh, so on, on, I I I would say so. Uh, I I that British intelligence plus U.S. intelligence they play their own game in this escalation. And I would urge to be to keep critical distance from this game. Or actually, it's quite probable that Russian intelligence they uh, they could uh, intentionally disinform the UK Foreign Office, and uh, that uh, raises the questions of how competent they are, and also the competence of their other conclusions about Ukraine and the, the whole escalation. Now, the Putin regime has called demanded a legally binding assurance that Ukraine will never join NATO. Um, at the same time, isn't it the case, I mean, if we look at polling from years ago, there was actually not a majority at all for membership of NATO yeah. in Ukraine. But that has changed, though, hasn't it? And that is because of the actions of the Russian regime, if we're going to be absolutely blunt, that that's actually driven a lot of people in Ukraine into a position they didn't have before, which is to join NATO. Is that correct? It's more complicated. So there was a jump in uh, pro-NATO sympathies right after the war started in 2014. 
And indeed, some people in Ukraine started to see NATO as a defense against Russia, and that was understandable. But it was also amazing that a very large uh, part of Ukrainian society didn't embrace NATO despite anything, despite the representation of the war, the war with Russia, and that's also a very big simplification of what's going on. Uh, so uh, there was something like 40-45% of support for NATO within Ukrainian society. And we also need to understand that when they poll this data, they do not include Donbass, which is controlled by the separatists, and Crimea, which is controlled by Russia. So this is a smaller part of Ukraine. And uh, the most pro-Russian territories are not included into this poll. So the, if you look at the bigger Ukraine, we would see much less support for NATO, in fact. And actually, we, if we are serious about getting back these territories to Ukraine, we, we must be uh, concerned what these people are thinking about very sensitive issue. And uh, so this 40-45%, it's not actually a majority. And support for NATO correlates uh, strongly with uh, the issues of national identity. It's, it's really strong in the Western regions. However, it's uh, not that strong, maybe not even, uh, it's pretty minority position actually in the Eastern and Southern regions of Ukraine, where support for keeping uh, non-block neutral status is actually stronger. And uh, some developments have been uh, during the last two years. First, uh, Zelensky uh, was a popular president and he campaigned for NATO. And it, uh, this factor increased support for NATO. And second, these build-ups and escalations of the last year, which also contributed to shift of the public opinion in support of NATO. So at the moment, uh, it's it's probable that uh, the NATO supporters would win a referendum. But when we discuss a referendum, it's actually squeezed to the yes or no choice and uh, eliminating any middle positions, uh, which are actually quite popular in Ukraine. And plus, uh, we do not count uh, millions of Ukrainian citizens who live in Donbass and in Crimea and who have a very strong opinion about this usually and quite negative against NATO. Just, just finally, uh, just a couple of things. There's been a lot of commentary amongst some circles who, you know, are skeptical about Western intentions, notwithstanding, I do think it is important to talk about the, the actions, of course, of the Russian regime, about far-right elements within Ukraine's government. So can we just have some clarity on that, about the political composition of Ukraine's government? And secondly, what do you expect to happen in uh, the next few weeks? Because our previous guests didn't think there would be a Russian invasion. They didn't think that was likely. They didn't think there was the appetite for that within Russian society. So those are my two questions. Could you explain for those who don't know about the, the Ukrainian government, what exactly is its political nature? And secondly, do you expect a full-scale war or do you not think that's likely to play out in the coming weeks? So since 2019, uh, Ukraine has actually a single party majority, first time in the modern Ukrainian history. So this is the government formed by Zelensky's party, the People's Servant, which is, was named after his TV show. And uh, so it doesn't include nominally far-right people. But uh, the uh, electoral weakness of Ukrainian far-right is uh, 
uh, doesn't mean that they are irrelevant. They uh, are probably extraordinary strong at the street level, at the level of mobilization, at the level of control over armed units. Azov uh, regiment is one of is perhaps the most famous of them, and there have been like massive number of uh, critical articles about Azov in Western English language press as well. And so even if the far right are not really popular to, uh, to, to win the elections, to enter the government, they uh, are probably uh, extraordinarily strong uh, as in any other country in Europe, at least. In any other country, you would find anything like, like Azov with, with a regiment, with a paramilitary uh, organization, with a political party affiliated to the armed unit, with the networks of summer camps, uh, training centers, uh, uh, with international connections. Die Zeit, the German uh, major newspaper, uh, last year published a large article, Brown International, where they put Azov into the center of this uh, uh, global far-right networks uh, and showcasing the important role in uh moving forward the the global far right uh, movement so uh, the, the, it's 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 more complicated than just to say that the ukrainian government is far right it's not true and it's also much more complicated to say that ukrainian far right uh electorally marginal so we don't need to care about them we need to care about them and uh, because of the very different reasons than we care about uh, the far right in the countries where they can poll 30 or 40 percent nevertheless they, they are very dangerous and uh what would could happen in in the next two weeks it's uh of course it's it's, it's just quite speculative forecast uh, but I would only add that uh, I think that Russia is quite serious about what they demand from NATO. And in case they won't be satisfied with NATO response, they would do something, probably asymmetrical, military technical. But it doesn't mean that we would do this in necessarily in Ukraine. And it uh, doesn't mean that uh, their response would be necessarily a large-scale invasion occupation of the large part of the country it would have like myriads of negative consequences for russia and uh, the possible sanctions are only just smaller part of that so in essence it could destabilize putin's regime uh, very fundamentally and uh, may end as uh, like a, basically a suicide for, for, for Putin's government. Uh, so uh, the, I think that Russia may do something, but a large-scale invasion that CIA and uh, now seems like, like British Foreign Office as well, uh, like feeding these messages into the media very systematically, uh, it looks like at the moment is uh, probably the least likely option of what can happen in the next future. Vladimir, we really, really appreciate your your thoughts and your expertise and going into the nuances of what's going on, lacking in a lot of the coverage, unfortunately, that we we have here. But I think that was a really thoughtful exposition of what's actually happening on the ground. So we really, really appreciate your time at short notice as well. And we, del we were delayed because of technical problems. But thank you so, so much for joining us.
Yeah, thank you so much, and I'll be glad to join once more time. That would be fantastic. Yeah. Great. I'll speak to you soon. Take care. Yeah. Goodbye. See ya. Um, fantastic stuff. Very lucky to have such brilliant guests uh, from around the world who can tell us in an informed way about what is actually going on. Now, we are finally joined by the brilliant Jess Barnard, who we have kept waiting with her cat. I can see her cat. Let's bring her in. Where is she? There she is. Puss! It's a puss. For those listening to the podcast, there is a beautiful black and white puss. What's the puss's name, Jess? Jess, we can't hear you. Your sound is not there. Where is she? I will just look at the cat. We'll just talk about cat. I'm going to talk about cats while Jess sorts out her audio. At the moment, of course, I am, uh, I'm in Barcelona, as I keep talking about, uh, and I don't have my cats with me. I can see, oh, hold on, if we just press me, here we go, go on, Jess, speak now. I think we're in. Yes! Can you hear me? Yeah, I'm, because I've been separated from my cats. Yeah. It's Kieran Rickman, who I've not seen for over th for three weeks now, Those three weeks exactly today, I missed him hugely, so obviously seeing your cat is it's making me feel a little bit emotional, to be honest. I'm not kidding when I say I've been sat here for 40 minutes. She's been off screen. As soon as you brought me in, she's walked over. I know, Jeff, for the I camera. Know. We, we started late because my camera collapsed, uh, which was quite annoying. So that's why I'm using my rubbish MacBook Pro camera. So again, apologies. Jess, right, let's just start. We've got we've got a few things to talk about. Um, I'm sorry again for giving you so long. So let's just start with, because uh, we spoke about Bosch on at great length, which is correct. So this week, Christian Wakeford, the Conservative MP, joined this is how of course uh the labor party officially cheered him on welcome christian wakeford the new labor mp the berry south the new comrade a socialist fighter for the labor movement so i mean there have been a few memes mocked up about this i think some people are cynical about the 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 fact that a tory mp who voted to drive children into poverty uh, had demonised refugees, uh, not just voted uh, um, accordingly, but uh, in case people thought the whips forced him to do that, but actually just said, he said that refugees were like going around with a shopping trolley, choosing which country they were going to go to, and suggested that the Labour Party cared more about defending foreign, uh, not deporting foreign criminals. Um, now, some memes were mocked up. Welcome, Sauron, Labour MP from Mordor East. There's some other ones that won't show, like welcoming Prince Andrew. Um, to be clear, just so we're absolutely clear, and no, we're not comparing either, because someone made, I, po I posted this, and people are like, oh, you're comparing Berry South to Mordor. No, the, the joke, the joke, for those who don't understand the joke, pretend to understand the joke, is the Labour Party would just invite anyone in if they defected and go, woo, regardless of their past record. In Christian Wakeford's case, voting for heinous things which have driven people into misery and people say all oh, the whips he voted to slash universal credit it some tory mps voted against that so it's not like he had a gun to his head so jess you're chair of young labor young labor did not welcome him in some people are going well that just shows electorally stupid need to win over conservatives this is the way to do it do you care about power or not you know we need sauron for mordor uh so what what do you say to that it's so ridiculous to say that we should be welcoming active Tory, not just like a Tory MP, right, for the last two years. This is a guy who has been a Tory councillor before that. He was uh, a councillor while he was an MP, I think, for the first uh, year of his term. So members of Bury South have 
spent the last 10 years or so campaigning against uh, Christian and his colleagues who have consistently enforced austerity policies that we have all been arguing against that they knew would harm their communities but did it regardless uh, and it's obviously a really like demoralizing position for our members uh, out in that constituency where you know they have had to go out and fight these Tories on the doorstep day in day out suffered a really devastating defeat uh, in 2019 one of the hardest elections that most of us had to go through and now they're being told that we have to welcome this guy with open arms and like let's put it into perspective right this is uh, a seat that was um it's one of the the smallest majorities for the Tories in the country so we're expected to believe that Christian, uh, a life, well, for as, as far as we know, a lifelong Tory and someone who's been an elected Tory for, for many, many years, uh, has suddenly changed his mind when Labour is polling above the Tories and he is predicted to lose his seat. I mean, it stinks of, of self-preservation and him just trying to, to protect his 80k wage to me. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. People do go on political journeys and people should be, you know, that's absolutely people. If people go on genuine political journeys, welcome them. They, you know, they explain their workings out, why they've changed and all the rest of it. But this was someone who was only elected two years ago. And I should say, I campaigned for the Labour candidate in Bury South, um, helped mobilise hundreds of people to do so. So, you know, it's a bit annoying uh, as someone who went out there and campaigned to stop this guy being elected to watch him now quite literally open, uh, welcome with open arms with no, and he said he hasn't changed his politics. I mean, Rachel Reeves says he hasn't changed his values. Uh, and Rachel Reeves, we didn't mock this up, we should have done, but in the Financial Times, she was interviewed. And I think this is why people are really aggravated. Meanwhile, Rachel Reeves said that drop in Labour membership, it's thought about 150,000 Labour members have gone, uh, which has reduced the party's income, to say the least, was a price worth paying for shedding unwelcome supporters and removing the stain of anti-Semitism from the party. Membership is in my constituency is falling, and that's a good thing, she said. People had left who should never have joined the Labour Party. They never shared our values. Now, I think we do need to disconnect something here. 150,000 people have not left the Labour Party because 150,000 people are anti-Semitic. I think it's very clear we make that absolutely abundantly clear. I know lots of people who've left the Labour Party, they're angry at the political direction, because Keir, including people who voted for Keir Starmer, my Facebook wall is full of people who voted for Keir Starmer. I, I mean, I didn't do that, but he did stand on a platform of 2017 manifesto as a foundational document, radical policies that uh, Labour championed over the last few years, party unity. People voted for that in good faith. They didn't get it, and they ripped up their party cards. They are not anti-Semites. There are anti-Semites, by the way, who don't belong in the Labour Party. That's a separate issue altogether. So, but Rachel Reeds here is saying people who should never have joined, she means socialists, let's be clear. So it's fine for 150,000 people never shared our values, but someone who voted to drive refugees into misery, you terrible rhetoric as he did so, who voted to drive children into poverty, which at least some of his colleagues had the good basic decency not to do. He shares the Labour Party's values, even though, as Rachel Reeves says, he hasn't changed his values. Completely. And I think this is just another example of how uh, like establishment politicians are much more likely to align with each other and protect each other and protect the status quo. Um, and, you know, as we see in the Labour Party, it's, it's socialists are enemy number one. Um, and they're much happy, happier to embrace Tories who inflicted 
in untold harm on our communities you know they they are the reason that so many people um are are struggling to pay their bills are struggling to put food on the table um are, you know are worried about their future in this country are facing you know racist attacks on our street they are the reason that those things are happening and yet people in leadership of our party are happy to embrace them meanwhile attacking uh socialists within the party and outside of the party and you know the reason for that is because they are a threat to this system and that is a re you know that's something we need to continue like fighting for and i think you know it's it's just absolutely devastating for members to to be labeled this way to be slurred this way we are the people that went went out and fought for the labor party day in day out the last election the one before that you know i joined the party in in 2015 and we were all tirelessly campaigning uh, for our local representatives and mps like rachel reeves and they you know they really ought to remember the reason that they are in the position that they're in is because we the people put them there and for as long as they keep taking that for granted then you know we won't we won't come out to fight for them we will fight for labor representatives who are willing to come out and support working people to stand up for the values that labor party was was created to represent uh you know not not the elite few not not people just looking out for their own interests or a career for people that need a labor government that rep represents change yeah i have to say i mean one of the things i've just found in terms of some of these people you know i, I i'm a geriatric millennial much older than you um and i joined the labor party when i was 15 <laughs> joined joined on my 15th birthday my mum bought me labor party membership on my 15th birthday now, at the time, that was not a popular thing for people on the left to do. Uh, Tony Blair was leader in 1999. Um, and uh, I voted for Labour all my life. Every single leader uh, I voted for. And now I'm my feed is full of people going, well, you should leave the Labour Party. Fuck off and leave the Labour You know, calling me a Tory stooge. People who were voting Liberal Democrat two years ago. I mean, it's just, it's, it's incredible. In fact, not only voting Lib Dem, on my Facebook wall, I have people who are current Lib Dem members who are denouncing me for criticising Keir Starmer as a Tory stooge, who are members of a political party that was in coalition with the Conservatives. I mean, it's just astonishing. You know, people who act, you know, some of these people, it's pure projection because they didn't want Labour to succeed under Jeremy Corbyn. They were actually glad about what happened in 2019. They hated 2017 when they moved several steps further to achieving power. And now, you know, they're, they're saying, well, I mean, they want the left driven out of the Labour Party. People who, who, who've shown no commitment to the Labour Party whatsoever, who threw their toys out the pram. I mean, it is a problem, isn't it? That, you know, it, it's great the Tories are collapsing at the moment because they've set themselves on fire, not because of anything the Labour leadership have done, but we are seeing a deliberate attempt to wage war, I think not just on the left, but the fact actually a lot of the values that younger Labour supporters believe in i mean that's a really important point because this is a generational divide which you as chair of young labor know all about yeah completely and the disregard that's been shown to young members is is absolutely disgusting and i think we've um been really clear you know we've tried to reach out to the leadership time and time again uh we've been willing to work with the party um to create events that that you know bring young people kind of back into the fold uh who feel that they've been shut out from from this leadership and from the party because of the direction that it's taking um and that's that's really been quite you know 
clearly rejected. Um, we've had very little um, support or willingness to engage. And so it does feel like young people and young voters are being taken for granted. And I guess there's some kind of electoral strategy going on in the leader's office uh, whereby they think that they can just ignore young people and they will just come out and vote regardless. But that, that couldn't be further from the truth. And, you know, as you said, your timeline is timeline is full of it. My social circles, you know, full of people who are saying, well, I don't I don't see why I would come out and, and vote for this Labour Party. They aren't talking about the issues that are facing that I'm facing. They aren't willing to support young people and call out, you know, the, the attacks on young people that the Tories have carried out. And I think as well for us as activists, you know, you've touched on this, but like Labour isn't like a, a football team or, you know, we don't come out and just wave our red top and that's what it means. Our party is about what we believe in and how we think that we should be treated and what kind of future we want to build and what kind of system we live under. That's what politics is about. And Christian Wakeford and his fellow Tories share little to none of those values or beliefs and he spent his entire time voting you know as you said scrap universal credit uplift in favor of the PCSC and nationality and borders bills you know he's referred to Black Lives Matter coverage by the BBC as, as Nambi Pambi approach to the woke agenda is this something that we should be welcoming in is this the direction of our party is that the future we're offering young people no and we need to overwhelmingly reject that and organize to get socialists in power just finally on that, because David Baratta asked, by allowing Wakeford into the party, it shows Labour's moving rapidly to the right. How can we combat Keir and the right wingers' control over Labour? Because some people are going to say, let's be honest, yes, it's all over now. There's no future for the left. These people, and I should bring in as well, I hope you don't mind me mentioning, I won't go into the details of it, but you face some horrific, horrific stuff thrown at you by to be honest, cheerleaders of the current leadership, who often, and I'm not saying it's about all people who support the leadership, but lots of decent people who still support the Labour leadership. Obviously, lots of people who voted for Keir Starmer who are disappointed, to say the least, about the fact he completely abandoned all the promises that he made to become leader of the Labour Party. Honestly, only matters in politics, though, as we know, if it's um, if it's a politician you don't like. If it's someone you agree, you know, these are people who go, Boris Johnson's a liar, which he is, a complete liar. If Keir Starmer wins the Labour leadership on a pack of complete falsehoods, oh, not a peep, because the left aren't legitimate political actors, so anything is fair game against them. But just say, you know, a lot of people go, it is all over now. These people hate the left. They hate the left more than the Tories, as we can see. They welcome in Tories whilst they cheer socialists ripping up their membership cards. There's no future for the left, they will say. People like us are completely delusional. What do you say to that? And just say a bit about what you've been, you know, what you what you've been up against. Mm -hmm. Well, um, I think, you know, I think what I face is uh, not not dissimilar to, I guess, what a lot of a lot of socialists in um, the public eye face. I think the thing that makes it quite difficult is that, um, you know, I was represented to, you know, to be to chair our youth, our youth wing. Uh, I don't work in politics. I'm not paid <laughs> in any kind of, you know, like political way. Um, and so I guess when these these kind of like just ridiculous um, rumours are circulated uh, publicly on social media about me, um, you know, that has kind of real repercussions. And we're meant to be the party of like working people. And it's kind of really just distressing, actually, that uh, we currently have a leadership that has never once reached out to me 
um, about these things that go on and uh, attacks that come from our own party members and there's been no support no safeguarding and then no concern for that and I think that's just a huge huge flaw and also I guess a message to just you know to two young workers in our party that they can't depend on the leadership to stand up for them and I think that's partly why you know it's so important that we get organized as trade unionists first and foremost because that you know th those are the those are the bodies that will stand up for us and that will you know be be on our side always um and i think in terms of like the the picture for the left yes it does feel really demoralizing and we have learned some seriously tough lessons as socialists we were not tough enough on these people when we were in power uh we were willing you know i, I guess too willing to uh to to coalition build very broadly to give people chance and chance again to work with us and not against us um which they refused time and time again and now that we're out of power we're seeing uh the leadership create as many barriers as they can possibly create to, to prevent any socialists being elected to represent Labour in the future. And, and so I think, you know, we need to learn those lessons. We need to find things that we can organise collectively. There is a lot of, a lot of, I guess, splitting and um, I guess divisive topics kind of splitting us and preventing us working together at the moment and I think we need to move past that we need to find a way that we can work together our goal has to be transforming society like if we turn around and we say it's all over guys well what you know what are we all doing here why are we all complaining on twitter let's get organized you know let's get let's get organized in our communities let's get recruiting for our trade unions, let's get organizing in our workplaces and start building that power base because without that we aren't going to succeed so if we can't be bothered to put the work in, we won't succeed. And that's exactly why we need to do that to fight back and regain those reins of power. Jess, that was brilliant. So good to have you as ever talking huge sense and giving a, a different perspective on what's going on within the Labour Party. So we really appreciate it. Again, sorry to keep you waiting. Bloody internet. Um, not internet, camera. The internet was fine. It's just my camera collapsing. Um, Thank you so, so much. Do follow Jess, obviously. Look up Jess Barnard on social media and follow her and just share all her brilliant stuff. Uh, but have a lovely Sunday and I'll speak to you soon. Thanks so much, Owen. Take, take care, I'll see you in a bit. Bye-bye. Um, brilliant to have Jess as ever, who is absolutely fantastic. And um, I saw someone here, I think they might saying, this lovely girl seems a little middle class to me. Incorrect. Working class. We need more working class socialists in the Labour Party. So, you know, get your facts straight. Um, thanks everyone for putting up with the technical issues, including this not, not really flattering MacBook Pro camera rather than our usual camera, which has gone defunct. My producer told me to stop going on about the technical issues, but I'm just a bit embarrassed. So that's, that's why I keep doing it. Um, thanks to Kieran Buckley, Tad Campwell, Micro Knight and David Boratta for their support during the show. Uh, do you press like? Because that was good. I, come on. There was a, that was great, despite all the problems. We had really insightful stuff from a Russian dissident in Moscow. We had a brilliant Ukrainian journalist who was telling us what's actually happening on the ground uh, in uh in Ukraine and, and the kind of nuances, if you like. And we had the brilliant, of course, Adam Bienkov on Boris Johnson and the huge crisis enveloping the Conservatives. Uh, and of course, we had Jess on the Labour Party stuff. That was quite just a huge breadth of stuff, uh, which is all made possible by your support, patreon.com forward slash omjoes84. You keep the show on the road, uh, even when our camera collapses when I'm in Barcelona. Um, but also, as I say, press like, subscribe, and download. Um, download? That's not good. I don't know. My late father, I've inherited his technological ineptitude. Uh, I hope he won't mind me saying that. 
Um, weird thing to say. Uh, but listen to us on our podcast uh, as well. Um, I'm going to be back in Britain in February. I hopefully will finish my book. Hopefully do a show on Thursday, depending on how much progress I do. But we will be back next Sunday and I'll try and sort out the camera in the meantime. Uh, thanks for bearing with us uh, during all of this. I hope everyone is doing well. Uh, this is going to be a big week. Will Boris Johnson, by the next time I see you, will Boris Johnson even be Prime Minister? Maybe Dominic Raab will be Prime Minister because he's Deputy Prime Minister, just so we're clear about what actually happens there. Thought I'd leave you on that note. And we will also see what happens within the Labour Party and, of course, the Russian crisis. And we will have voices on the Russian crisis, depending on the Ukraine crisis, depending on what happens. Uh, well, documentaries will be back soon. Uh, thanks for your support, everyone. And uh, take care. Lots of love. Thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you found that informative, educational, uh, interesting, and I certainly did. Uh, do support us on Patreon to keep the show on the road, uh, forward slash Jones 84 Leave us some stars, that'd be nice. Spread the word. And I look forward to speaking to you soon. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.